The following episode of the Movie Club podcast can and will contain spoilers. Please be aware of this before you listen. Thank you. gentlemen hello out there welcome to the third episode of the movie club podcast this is a monthly podcast where we uh, sit down and discuss two movies uh, that we had previously announced and uh, this week we're talking about john carpenter's escape from new york and uh, the last man on earth starring vincent price um, so my name is Sean. I come from the Film Junk website, and uh, maybe we'll go around the table as usual, and everyone can introduce themselves. My name is Jay. I'm also from Film Junk, and I'm the editor of the documentary blog.com. Hey, this is Andrew. Um, I run Movie Patron, and I'm also one of the members of the newly founded Row3.com. And we do this time also from Row3.com. And lastly, I'll wait to the end here, it's uh, Kurt from uh, Twitch and also now writing for Row 3. So there's a Row 3 majority in this table. Yes, it's kind Row of Row 3 rules. Instead of the film junk majority before. <laughs> um, so uh, we're going to start, kick things off with Escape from New York. Um, and obviously, being a John Carpenter film... I think, Jay, I'm going to have to ask you just to intro this, being that you are a huge Carpenter fan. Um, but you <laughs> This know, is exactly what I was worried about. Um, okay, well, John Carpenter's Escape from New York, uh, right up front, it's actually not one of my favorite John Carpenter films, and it's definitely not one of the worst uh, in my books. It's a classic. It's one of the few f- uh, films of his that was somewhat a success and it stars Kurt Russell as Snake Plissken it's a a post-apocalyptic film it it came out in the early 80s I think it's 80 or 81 81 81 right around the time that this was kind of popular Um, so basically the the story is Snake Plissken he's kind of this rebel a loner uh, is sent into the island of Manhattan which is now kind of uh, broken off from society and used as a penal island um, to rescue the president, played by Donald, Donald Pleasance, whose um, his plane was hijacked and then he ejected in a, a giant Austin Powers style egg. And uh, <laughs> yes, P squared, as they call it. And uh, <clears throat> it lands in Manhattan, and Snake Plissken is ordered, forced to go in and uh, rescue the president. And he he gets into many misadventures along the way. Um, and this is, this is uh, uh, yet another film where John Carpenter teamed with the wonderful Kurt Russell. Yeah, no, I think it's definitely one of Kurt Russell's defining roles. Um, but uh, one thing I want to mention right off the bat is I love how 
uh, the movie opens, and like this is such a common thing you see now with movies that were, you know, from the 60s, 70s, whatever. They're supposed to be science fiction in the future, and it opens with now 1997, mm-hmm. which you know <laughs> it was 10 years ago already. And uh, it's awesome to be it, honest, it, viewing it now and seeing that that just brought a huge smile to my face. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I don't know. I mean, so you've got this future kind of, I guess it's supposed to be kind of like a dystopian future. And uh, obviously, you the, the people who go to this prison, Manhattan Island, never come out. So it's just complete chaos rules kind of thing in there. And, um, and you know, I guess this for me and, you know, this is something you see mentioned in, you know, the special features on the DVD and all of this. It's, it's, there's a lot of Western elements. Uh, which obviously John Carpenter is a big fan of. Um, has ever was anybody watching this for the first time uh, for this podcast? No. Nope. Uh, so, what uh, what is everybody's kind of thoughts on this? Like, was it uh, what you remembered it being, or? Uh... Well, I first of all, I think it was just a little bit cheesier than I remember it being because I haven't seen it since. I was a teenager when it was a little bit cooler at the time. But secondly, I feel like this idea of sort of a, an island being turned into a penal colony or at least isolated from the rest of the world full of outcasts, I feel like that idea has been done times, I don't know, before or since uh, Escape from New York. I mean, there's that, that one with Ray Liotta where it's kind of similar and uh, you've got the... The, uh, the Asian one, uh, Battle, Royale, Battle Royale, which is similar in a way. Um, and there's just a bunch of movies like that where they just stick a bunch of crazy people on an island and see what happens, and that's kind of... So the, this is a recurring theme that I've seen in lots of movies, but definitely felt like this cheesy 80 vibe throughout a lot of it. Which is what makes it so great. Yeah, that Casio, that Casio <laughs> keyboard thing. Man, <clears throat> the music is probably that score is one of my favorite John Carpenter scores, and you can you can hear uh, elements that kind of were carried over in, into films that came after that. But um, yeah, I, I mean this this movie is definitely of a certain time, and like I'd said, it's it's of the the early '80s when this style of film was popular. Um, <clears throat> you know, you have like the warriors, which I think was the, the late seventies. Um, but, uh, like dead end driving Mad Max and, and, uh, you know, uh, streets of fire, um, films like that, where there is almost this, uh, eight in the eighties, this whole genre of the post-apocalyptic sort of, uh, you know, lone hero fighting the, the forces of, of uh, evil, and I, I think that's something that isn't cool anymore. Um, one thing uh, to bring up: the when Land of the Dead came out, I know a lot of people didn't like that movie, and I didn't. It was, definitely wasn't my favorite of George Romero's dead films. But one thing I loved about it was it embraced that kind of really typical Western style hero. And he was an older guy and, you know, he was just kind of the really uh, cool, 
Badass. Uh, yeah. And it, it was weird watching that in the theater because I was so used to seeing teens and seeing groups of young people just being killed off or, or, uh, a lot of young female heroes. It's no longer in style to have an older male hero. And I, that's something I definitely miss. Well, Kurt Russell was only in his early thirties when, um, Escape from New York was made. So he wasn't, by older, I mean old, but I guess he's. I guess he wasn't like twenty four. Right. By older, I mean someone that isn't coming off of Dawson's Creek or, you know, Party of Five or something like. Um, yeah, I, I mean, like a just a a man's man kind of thing, and I guess that's kind of coming back a little bit now. But was definitely, it like candy. <clears throat> sorry, was it candied up. A little bit, like a little bit on the blockbuster side of coming out of the gritty anti-hero filmmaking of the 70s. So, you know, Star Wars and uh, um, there was a, there was a sense of now blockbustering the anti-hero. I mean, you had Han Solo in Star Wars, of course. You've got Snake Plissken in this. It's funny because, like Star Wars, it's quite goofy looking but it takes itself so deadly serious like everything in even when snake cracks off his you know call me snake it's done there's not all there's no winking at the camera here it's done deadly serious and i don't know it just yeah it all looks goofy and it all looks dated and whatnot the fact that everyone was taking things so serious over the course of the movie, it pulled me in. It pulled me into it, and, and I, I didn't have any issues whatsoever uh, with its datedness. Well, another interesting element of, uh, I guess, it being dated is the beginning. He uh, glides in and lands on top of the World Trade Center, mm-hmm. which, of course, is another moment where you're kind of like, whoa, like this is an old movie, this could never happen anymore obviously um but uh yeah there's something strange about these older movies that you know are kind of set in the future but now you look back on them they seem more believable than you know the sci-fi stuff that generally is coming out nowadays and uh you know i don't know if it part of it is just the fact that it was kind of a lower budget production like i think uh they said it was shot for like five million or something like that. Yeah, it's definitely a low budget film. Um, it's it, it had some success, but it it's just a exploitation movie. I mean, it's basically calling back to John Carpenter's roots in in a, you know something like Assault on Precinct Thirteen. It's you know basically a glorified gang film. Yeah. Um, uh, one thing that kind of struck me too, watching it now. Um, and I don't know, maybe this is completely out of left field, but it kind of reminded me a little bit of Black Hawk Down. And it made me think, like, this was kind of like urban warfare before the modern-day urban warfare actually started really happening, you know what I mean? So, well, I guess that's one thing this movie has uh, over Black Hawk Down is the presence of Isaac Hayes, who <laughs> would have made Black Hawk Down a hundred times better. True. I don't know if you guys have ever gone to this uh, men's magazine uh, website called um, doubleviking.com. 
and they have this series called Real Men Love, and then they, you know, plop a film title in there. They actually have an entry on Escape from New York, and the way they write the reviews is they almost bullet point aspects of the movie, and my favorite part is the Isaac Hayes uh, bullet point. Something along the lines of when you want someone as badass as Shaft, but you can't get him, you might as well get the guy who wrote the theme song. <laughs> <laughs> Which, even though Isaac Hayes really doesn't actually have much to do in the movie, he has the little bit end se fight sequence, and he sort of stands around him, and he doesn't actually do much, but I didn't... You know, I didn't consider him to be terrible in the movie. I thought he was... He had his own... Everything in this movie, if it was done today, which it may very well be, I had heard at one point it might be done with Gerald Butler, which is an awful casting choice, but anyway, um, if it was done today, it would be overblown. I, I think one of the charms of Escape from New York is just how low-key the thing actually is. Yeah, I mean... I'm pretty sure I, I don't know like what from what I've heard that remake kind of the the original way they were setting it up has kind of you know been put on hold and like the people who were associated with it dropped out but if that remake does happen at some point it, it's gonna be you know a direct contrast and you'll be able to hold up that version and look at the old version and I'm pretty sure the old version is going to be far superior well the best way to summarize how the remake would be different and how they would have to do it today is there's no way in hell that the president is getting into the presidential pod in the remake <laughs> they won't have an egg-shaped escape pod in the remake because they that would be considered stupid <laughs> but it is. But it's awesome. the best you're <laughs> awesome every every time donald pleasance is on screen in Escape from New York, even when he's got like this girl's wig on at one point when they've got him tied up, um, when he's in the shooting gallery when they're they're sort of just taking pot shots at him, um, and then of course the iconic moment. Well, there's a couple key Donald Pleasant moments at the end, but when he's when he's got the fully automatic weapon and he just <laughs> yeah. opens up with that weapon and the camera's on this the camera's like down on this ground level and he's up on the wall and it's looking up at him from far away and the machine gun is just shaking his entire body <laughs> as he just unloads and unloads and unloads this clip and of course he's screaming um, a line of dialogue that Isaac Hayes used uh, later the the uh, your a number one uh, which just adds <laughs> to it it's so comic and goofy uh, Yet it works so well. I, I I have a thing for Donald Pleasance in, in John Carpenter movies. Every time he says, Bastard! in in Halloween, I just it cracks me up too. He rules in John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. He is so over the top in that movie, but he's over the top in his restraint. Like he's always quivering in a corner and like <laughs> under his breath praying and reading some scriptures and like looking up to the sky for God. And he's like, Lord, where are you? <laughs> but he's like, he's, he's, he's perfect. Got, like, going on in Escape from New York. If you yeah. look at it, it's going on there completely. He's, um, everyone else is pretty deadpan um, uh, in the movie, but Donald Pleasance is coming at it, coming at you with both barrels in that movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, actually, I was thinking, uh, Maybe we could ask uh, Marina, since this is kind of being 
touted as like a man's man kind of film. Uh, what's sort of the female perspective on this? Because I know, uh, you know, Adrian Barbeau is in this and she plays kind of a tough girl, uh, you know, kind of maybe sort of a Sigourney Weaverish inspired character. Um, what, how do you approach this movie? Well, I'm probably not the best person to ask because I'm not your typical girl. Right. But um, I, I had fun with it. And actually, I think the reason I like it the most is because it's Kurt Russell. A young Kurt Russell, a very handsome Kurt Russell. So, I mean, from that perspective alone, it's worth seeing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just yeah, wanted I to know right. where that snake tattoo ends. <laughs> I was actually thinking that during that rest of the time. Hmm, that's a little strange. I don't want to think about that anymore. That's another thing we don't see enough in movies anymore either is like, every post-apocalyptic movie needs to have like a giant like gladiatorial battle and see this is what i loved about now if if i can kind of take us into the escape from la direction a little bit here although the wrestling scene rules in uh escape from new york what tops it in escape from la for me is the basketball scene (laughs) and so many people think that that's so stupid but it isn't. It's, no, it isn't. it's, it's perfect. I, I'm with you on that one. I, I love that. The whole, the, the, the timing and the rhythm and the, the reaction shots in that basketball scene, it just takes it right to the top. And it's just a, a example of how Escape from L.A. kind of hits every note that Escape from New York does. And Kurt, you mentioned how it's it's comparable to Evil Dead 1 and Evil Dead 2 in that one is sort of a, a revisioning of the original and just kind of taken to a ridiculous level and almost, in a way, parried, parodying itself. And, you know, almost character for character in, in Escape from L.A., you can match it to Escape from New York. And it's a movie that I think there were some some high expectations for. I mean, Escape from New York isn't you know, kind of a a standard classic for everyone. But the people who were waiting for Escape from L.A. were really excited for it. And apparently a lot of people were let down. And I think a huge part of that is the fact that the special effects in it aren't that great. But for me, that is one of the funnest movies I've I've ever seen. It's one of the funner John Carpenter films. Like there's, there's so many moments in Escape from L.A., that stand out for me as being classic. Well, here's the difference between Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. In Escape from New York, even as cornball as the premise is, um, it's played deadly serious. It, everyone is playing Escape from New York serious. In Escape from L.A., there's a lot more winking at the camera. And it's it's not grating. And I, I may perhaps the people that do not like Escape from L.A., that, that is the key thing that rubbed them the wrong way. Um, but there's a scene in Escape from L.A. There's so many, like you said. But the scene that always springs to mind is the um, uh, when he goes surfing with, uh, with Peter Fonda. <laughs> and the, the effects in that scene, like you said, are atrocious. And it, you can actually see the arm or whatever, you know, uh, crane that Kurt Russell is as he joins. Like, it's almost like he's coming up an escalator to join Peter Fonda. Yeah. It's so <laughs> ridiculous that it actually, for me, becomes sublime because it just is like, you know, 
you know, well, there's up with the big boys kind of thing. Yeah, there's a shot in that sequence where it's one of those obviously blue screened surf shots that you would see in any of the like beach blanket bingo. Gidget. Yeah, and you see Kurt Russell balancing with the wave behind him, obviously blue screened, and he does like a high five slap with Peter Fonda. <laughs> And it's the most obvious kind of, you know, tribute to those films. And, you know, the, the Dick Dale song is playing in the background. I don't know how anyone could watch that and not realize that this is kind of just having fun with itself. And the thing that really kind of brought that to my attention was when the Grindhouse Madness came about last spring and the trailer for Grindhouse came out. And suddenly everyone was saying, uh, putting up lists of best Kurt Russell films and Kurt Russell rules and I can't wait to see Kurt Russell in this but every one of those would uh, have at the end in you know an asterisk and in, in fine print except for Escape from LA that movie was shit and it always drove me nuts to see that because if you look at the Grindhouse trailer it's exactly the same tone it's like Planet Terror mainly is the exact same tone as Escape from LA it's all over the top and the music is almost note for note in some cases. And, you know, uh, the the gun leg and, and ridiculous things like that are, you know, a, a complete sort of um, are in the, the same tradition as Escape from L.A., a set that Robert Rodriguez happened to visit when uh, it was being filmed. And I'm sure he he took kind of a hint from that movie. Well. Wow. Robert Rodriguez, I believe, makes no bones about the. You look at the score to Planet Terror. You look at the structure to Planet Terror. You look at, at the execution, even the concept. The main character. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the Freddie Rodriguez character is Snake. I mean, it is the closest modern equivalent to Snake as you could possibly get. Mm -hmm. I mean, even the way. I mean, for some reason, Freddie Rodriguez is probably the same age as Kurt Russell was when he made Escape from New York, um, he doesn't pull it off as well as, as um, Kurt Russell. Probably because, uh, I don't know if he smokes in the movie, Kurt Russell does so much with cigarettes, just the way, I, I, I love movies, I, I'm not a smoker, but I watch the movies to see people's body language with cigarettes. I, I think he can do so much. And there's a scene where Kurt Russell is in Lee Van Cleef's office and, and they're, you know, they're just both smoking. And that scene just, it, it's amazing how much is going on in that scene outside of the dialogue, just in body language. Yeah. Plus you throw on the badass patch, which they never explain why he's wearing it. Mm -hmm. uh, that adds just infinite amounts of fun to the character, I think. Hey, uh, I got a question. Has anybody read the Escape from New York novelization? I am not that hardcore. I would like to be, but I'm not. No. Well, I was because I was just reading up on Wikipedia, and uh, apparently there is a novelization, and it has all this extra backstory about Snake Plissken. And uh, I don't know if that's kind of. I know they did some comics as well. I don't know if they kind of brought some of that out of there, but I'll have to well, hit that up after my uh, after I'm done my Ghostbusters two novelization. <laughs> <laughs> They allude to it pretty strongly in um, conversations that he has with Brain, who's played by the truly one-of-a-kind Harry Dean Stanton, who just rocks the Brain character in this movie. Um, but they have conversations 
I don't know if they indicate whether or not he lost the eye, but there was they they do have this series of conversations that um, <clears throat> that brain left him basically for dead and took off on him um, in some past criminal or or military enterprise that they had going on before they both end up in the Manhattan prison. I don't. I don't recall directly. It's been three weeks since I've seen the movie. Whether or not it it alludes to the eye loss or not, but I agree with you. It's much cooler when someone has an obvious defect that is never explained. I, I for some reason I prefer that in in movies. It's just like you know, like these characters have lives outside of the immediate story, even if it is such a far fetched and over the top comic book, which is what Escape from New York is. Well, actually, that reminds me of. Uh Something that John Carpenter does uh, every once in a while, which I guess is a, a tribute to Howard Hawks, um, where there's a, a line of dialogue that's repeated throughout uh, a film. I guess in, uh, I think, Rio Bravo, there's some, something about a, um, wanting a cigarette or a drink or something that's repeated. But in, in Escape from New York, it's everyone, whenever they meet up with Snake and they say, I thought you were dead. Right. And that's repeated. And then in Escape from L.A., whenever they meet up with him, they I say, I thought you were taller. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, in Prince of Darkness, they do it. And it's when one of the, the women in the building goes missing. And when someone is, is looking for her, everyone repeats, you know, have you seen Susan? And the, someone will be like, who's Susan? Radiologist, glasses. And that's repeated throughout the whole, the whole movie for uh, probably five or six times. So it's a, a John Carpenter-ism, I guess, that's stolen from Howard Hawks. Well, of course, The Thing is also <laughs> taken directly from Howard Hawks. It's the Thing yeah. is the remake of Hawks, yeah. The Thing from Outer Space. Another little tidbit of trivia. A um, couple characters in Escape from New York named Romero and Cronenberg. <laughs> yes. I, I know Fred Decker. I had just seen they had a screening in Toronto a couple months ago of Night of the Creeps, and I, and I found that actually distracting re-watching Escape from New York. Now, obviously, Escape from New York was four years before Night of the Creeps, but Fred Decker does that with all of his characters. He gives them all horror film uh, last names. Right. So, yeah, I th- I, it really stood out when I was watching um, uh, Escape from New York. And keep in mind, in 1981, David Cronenberg was making things like Rabbit and Shivers, like really low budget um, exploitation, Canadian exploitation, which is even less seen. Um, yeah. And uh, but now, of course, uh, uh, I don't know who's a bigger name, David Cronenberg or, or John Carpenter. It's debatable, I suppose. They're both well known if you like horror f- films. I can tell you who's more respected. <laughs> well, yes. uh, well, actually, actually, that's a good point, though. The one thing that I love about John Carpenter is that he does inject a lot of things. Like, look at all the Reaganisms in They Live, and you could argue that, I don't know, because this is 81 and the screenplay was probably written in 80 or 79, but it almost feels like that downsizing of government and putting every, all the prison in one place is a Reagan thing as well. Well, actually, but I think... Sorry, I just I think I read that he originally wrote the script like years earlier, and it was about Watergate. Oh, okay, so um, the fact is, Carpenter always throws those things in. Yet he always keeps his movies, um, you know, fully accessible to everyone. It's like he, in a way, on a certain level, he does have his cake and eat it too. He, he 
he never aims for you know high art. He's always aiming for entertainment, but he always does inject tidbits in all of his films. Um, have tidbits of it here and there. What? Starman is the Iran hostage crisis. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, he does. I, and I one thing I really love about John Carpenter is the fact that he doesn't really bow down to critical acclaim. I'm sure he would enjoy critical acclaim. He only cares if it leads <laughs> to commercial acclaim. Yeah, he, he has no qualms about uh, being, you know, accepting a check to have his name as an executive producer on a remake of one of his films. And normally I would question that, but this guy... I think deserves that check. I'm uh, he's had so many movies that he um, directed and, and wrote in most cases that flopped when they came out and had no critical success, no financial success and have gone on to become classics. And, you know, he, I, I think he gets the shit under the stick sometimes and his late career, he, he was just dogged time and time again for every movie that he's done since, I don't know, I guess in the mouth of madness, maybe that was um, the beginning of the carpenter downfall, which is a shame. Cause I actually, it's a solid film. I really do enjoy that one. Yeah. Well that was, I think that was the last one that got mild reviews. Um, but from there, you know, village of the damned, he, he did that and that went direct to video overseas and here it just, bombed and and it wasn't right. very well, good a guilty pleasure for me but yeah, yeah I, I i totally see why people rip it to shreds but it's a it's a guilty uh pleasure to have luke skywalker as a priest and um kirstie alley vivisected um that's all good i just enjoy that it was uh um uh christopher reeve's final <laughs> performance <laughs> well as a well, walking fine. man right. <laughs> yeah. Um, let me ask a question. Um, Sean had said something earlier after mentioning the, the glider on the on the World Trade Center. Something about believability. How do you guys think that this movie, like, if in a real world sense, is believable? Like, I kept thinking they could do something like this, like get an island and just dump the bad people there, and you know, don't call it Australia it at the turn of the century. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like. I just was like, if they really did this, is this how it would be? And I kept thinking, it seems to me that this is probably this is sort of how it would be, except I think there would be a lot more people there than are in the movie. Like, it just seems like he kind of walks around the streets and he just meets people here and there. There's, there, I would think there would just be, like, villages set up all over the place and, like, little... Hoovervilles and stuff like that. Um, this sounds like a great idea for a new reality show. Like seriously, Kid Nation. I <laughs> know, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, it's it's a good question. I like for me, that's what I like. Science fiction that kind of has a little bit of just something that you can you can get into it just a little bit more because you feel like this might might potentially happen. And I mean, yeah, Snake Plissken and and all his antics are a little bit over the top, but that that initial premise i could see it happening one day i think it would be cool 
as long as they have cameras set up all over the city so you, you can log in, right? Yeah, that would be Running Man style. That would be awesome. Yeah, that, that movie immediately sprung to mind. <laughs> and just Running Man meets the Truman Show. One interesting thing, well, two interesting things. Um, the opening with the sort of computer, the woman's voice and the, you know, the mm-hmm. computer representation kind of thing. Uh, the voice is Jamie Lee Curtis and she reprises that role in Escape you, from L.A. Are you sure about that? Because I thought it was Deborah Hill. I thought I read somewhere that she did the voice for a computer voice, maybe a different no, one. No, I'm pretty sure it's Jamie Lee Curtis. Says Deborah Hill, computer voice in IMDb. But, oh, Jamie Lee Curtis, narrator, computer voice, uncredited. Boom! Boom! <laughs> Boom goes the dynamite! <laughs> um, I don't know who to believe here, but... And uh, the other cool thing is James Cameron actually did uh, some of the effects work on Escape from New York. Uh, I think he mainly did some matte paintings um, when he was working for, I guess, Roger Corman. Uh, So you get to see some early, you know, I guess post, maybe pre-Piranha 2 James Cameron work. (laughs) But I thought it was cool how they did the 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 kind of like grid New York when he's flying in on the glider and you can see that like the green grid outline like the 3D model thing yeah I thought that actually looked like pretty current almost like well uh, yeah I mean I guess what they did is it was an actual model and they painted green lines on black cubes oh, okay. and lit it with a light so it glowed wow so it's actual actually a physical model that the camera is flying through hmm. Which is why practical effects always seems to age better than uh, than computer effects. Yeah, the the effects in Escape from New York are already better than Escape from L.A., which is, I guess, which says something LA about CG. Suffers from the same thing that a movie like uh, <laughs> Aliens Three suffered from. It was it was on the cusp of, you know, mm-hmm. old to new, and it was just sort of yeah, and and being a lower budget movie in 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 amongst there, but. Again, I think with a lot of John Carpenter's films, uh, I guess The Thing being one of the exceptions, the special effects always look a little bit clunky, but they fit in the world uh, that you're in. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're charming. Or at least, yeah, they're charming, and, that, and that's, uh, um, that's what I like. And his casting choices all throughout... Uh, New York and LA. You said that they're they're analogous. I mean, I love the fact that the that Ernest Borgnine plays Cabby, and he's such he's such a nice guy, but he's got this sort of nonchalant mean streak as he smiles. Like as he's kind of given his tour, he's firebombing hoods, uh, <laughs> you know, in the in the course of the movie. And the one thing that always I always wondered is, it seems to be only uh, the Duke with his entourage and like the best pimped out car ever made in a film that, 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 that his, yeah his it is pretty it is pretty killer chandeliers <laughs> it's just awesome but somebody should Cabby, make that on uh, pimp my ride no kidding <laughs> uh but cabby and them are the only ones with cars and it, one thing that always struck me as weird when i'm watching the movie is that no one the cabbie leaves his car quite often and goes off and does something, and no one touches his car. Um, it just—it's very strange. <laughs> you think, you know, in, in it's an unwritten chaos, law. It just, 
you know, no one no one comes out and attacks the car. But the, yeah. they know better anyway. Uh, speaking of characters, I love the whoever the Duke's like right hand man was, the, just sort of a, the crazy guy, the eagle looking guy. Whatever he, the way he walked and moved around, he sort of reminded me of like um, Jack, uh, the pirate Jack uh, Sparrow. Name? Jack Sparrow. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Jack the pirate. The way he would walk and just move his arms all around, and then the way he talked, he was just crazy. I think that was totally my favorite character. He reminded me of Brad Dourif in David Lynch's Dune, Peter DeVries, the the Mentat character. Anyway, they looked the same with the bug eyes. <laughs> Just kind of weird. Yeah, it was an interesting role. I thought he stuck out like a sore thumb compared to everybody else. Like everybody else seemed pretty, like you said, just kind of low key, and this guy was just going over the top with his character. Hmm. Well, I I even though, like I said, it's not my favorite John Carpenter movie. It's definitely one of his classics. I I would guess. It's probably third under Halloween and the Thing as maybe maybe even under Big Trouble in Little China, but as uh, one of his greats. And well, let me ask everyone this: When you watch an older movie, and this is going to be doubly applicable for The Last Man on Earth uh, when we get to that, when you watch an old movie, I mean, do you try to look at it through the lens of? <clears throat> that time and place or do you look at it through the lens of what you think a modern film should be i, I find I, I know i've had conversations with people that cannot watch films that are more than 25 years old especially science fiction films because either the acting style is different or the special effects are radically different and that is a showstopper for them, and I know we've talked a bit about special effects already. But when you guys were watching the movie, um, yeah, how do you view watching an older movie? Well, I can tell you that I think I might have a little bit of the opposite effect. Where when I'm watching an older science fiction film, I really dig the bad special effects. Like when I watch, like recently, I reviewed Robinson Crusoe on Mars, and I liked the movie. I think I liked it even more because of the style, um, you know, which I guess if you were watching it at the time, wouldn't be anything special. It would just be another film. Um, but I think I might give it bonus marks now because I'm just drawn to that style. Like and Harry Housen kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, there's certain effects um, like stop motion or, uh, you know, a lot of the Mario Bava movies I, I like because of the costumes and the, and the, the yeah. So I think I have the opposite effect where I almost have to pull myself back a little bit and not get so wrapped up in the, uh, the, the aesthetics. Yeah. And like the, the, uh, maybe just look, trying too much to look past certain things, uh, which I'll get into with the last man on earth. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I would have the opposite. I, I really enjoy, especially in science fiction, watching older films with, you know, horrible rubber costumes and, and matte paintings and, and really colorful things. I, I enjoy it a lot. And I can't stand that. Probably one of the reasons why I don't like B-movies. Just can't stand it. But for me, um, 
one of the reasons why I like Escape from New York and even though it's much newer, Escape from LA, is that watching it even now, and I mean it's been probably a few years since I saw it last, it was like pretty much like watching it for the first time again. And it just it felt like a new movie to me. Like yeah, there are some things like, you know, the computer animation at the beginning that's obviously not from today, but in general, as a whole, I think it stands up the test of time. And f- when I watch some of these science fiction movies, and even just movies in general, the ones that I like to rewatch are the ones that I can watch them, you know, ten, five, ten years from now, and they're st- they still feel immediate. And I, that's why I like this one so much because it still feels, yeah, you know, it was made, you know, before, and it's if it, it, it does have a bit of a retro feel, but not so much that it's unwatchable, like the effects aren't so bad that they're kind of laughable, but they're not, I can't write them off completely. It's sort of, it walks the fine line for me. It's almost, if it was a little bit more, I probably wouldn't enjoy it, but as, uh, but as it is, it really works. Yeah, I think um, you're, you, you can't compare this to something like Robinson Crusoe on Mars or whatever, because I watched your, your review of that and was looking mm-hmm. at the special effects, and that was like you know, ultra cheesy. I mean, you know, you got rockets with strings and stuff on them, and or movies of that era. Era, and I can totally understand the people that you talk to, Kurt, who just, like Marina said, you just can't watch them because you just, you know, it's so obvious. It just hits you over the head. Like, wow, this is just not interesting to look at compared to the stuff that we see today. And but. And I used to be that way, and I would say that it's sort of almost like an acquired taste, or like you you almost have to train yourself to overlook it, or at least understand, put yourself in their shoes, or understand that it's old, and um, you know just just work with it and, and train yourself to understand it and why it's why it still maybe is worthy of watching. And your yeah, response? I'll th- oh, go ahead, Marina. Oh, I was just going to say, but I think it's also something to do with the story itself. I mean, if it's so bad and the story isn't there, then it's just not worth watching, period. Yeah, true. Absolutely. Uh, Where you were coming from, Andrew, is I find people that watch a lot of movies or they they watch them less casually um, tend to feel – tend to come to the place that you're talking about and that Mm -hmm. you – you try and put yourself in that movie's time and place. I know I find myself as uh, I, I'm in the same agreements, and and I have a bit of Jay's thing that I I, I can really get caught up in form and aesthetics, and uh, I like it when there is a good story to balance that out. But there is something about those old practical special effects uh, movies that suck me in more than. Because it, if you watch Escape from New York, yeah, there's effects, but huge chunks of the movies have no effect shots in them at all. And modern science fiction films and, um, I mean, modern films in general are so over-processed, and that can be a good thing. Um, but when you look at a lot of Escape from New York, it's just them in the New York library talking to... Harry Dean Stanton and, jeez, uh, the actress's name escaped me just right there. Um, Adrian or, Barbeau. Adrian Barbeau, thank you. And, or, you know, just them in the, the diner with that 
one girl that's introduced for five minutes and then sucked under the floorboards. I, I mean, there isn't a lot of reliance on special effects. So well, uh, the, I rambled out of that response. The way I look at it, ahead, sorry, <laughs> uh, the way I look at it is nowadays you can do almost almost anything. And I would much rather, you know, than seeing a, a film with a, a bullet time slow motion moment of someone flying the, through the air, shooting a bullet and, you know, following the bullet until it hits someone in the chest and seeing it enter into his heart, come out the other end and go through a shot glass full of whiskey in slow motion and, you know, <laughs> stuff that is a dime a dozen nowadays. I'd rather see a glider land on top of the World Trade Center (laughs) done somewhat poorly. That is hard to do nowadays. That is true. (laughs) But um, you know what I I mean? Like I'd rather ambition and creativity taking uh, first spot to whether or not they can do it technically than being able to do something perfectly but losing a bit of that creativity. And I think just sometimes in older films, because they couldn't do very much, they almost it almost freed them up more because it was like, well, it's going to look fake either way. So they're not concerned about making it look real. They're just concerned about making it happen. And uh, I, I like that. I mean, there, and it leads to creative things. And like going back to the, the just because it's on my mind, the Robinson Crusoe on Mars thing, even though that, that is a different era, Escape from New York is way beyond that. But just certain things like in that, to, to create Mars, they use the blue sky as a, a natural blue screen and just replace it with red. And that's simple and it, it looks fine and it looks perfect. And, you know, just little in, ingenious things like that. Um, matte paintings for me, I love matte paintings. And digital matte paintings are ev- are really nice. The only thing that they give you is a little bit of motion. But in most cases, I would actually prefer seeing a hand-painted, beautiful piece of art that in some cases blends in so perfectly that even watching films that are 30 years old, I guarantee some people wouldn't be able to, to point out what is a matte painting and what isn't. Uh, like Mario Bava's films, that guy was a matte painter. And some of the paintings in those films are insane. They seamlessly blend. Yeah. yeah I, I think you're hitting on something core, though. The, the, and and low-budget films often hit that, is the, the whole artistic realization through a limitation. They get around something precisely because they're limited. And it almost pushes them to be more creative because Absolutely. they may not be able to recreate the someone getting shot in slow motion and following the bullet through the guts. And because they can't do that, they have to create something that's even more of a a sight, like something that's more uh, visually interesting and visually stunning, even if it does fall into the fake sort of side of things. But it, it almost that fakeness in itself is like a, a piece of abstract art it's not reality. You're not trying to, you know, that, that's the difference with effects now and then. Now, Someone's jaw who doesn't hit the floor when they see that guy's head explode at the beginning of Scanners. 
Yeah, I mean, right now we're we're trying to do everything seamless and real, uh, as real as possible, and that is is it's created a new art. It's created this this digital art where people are trying to make things photorealistic, but it's lost that uh, special effects art form of like miniatures that you know you watch it and you know that's a miniature and it's like wow that miniature is awesome um but now it's like well you you just want them to ignore the miniature and i i like i love the older films that you know you you can appreciate effects like animatronic creatures as being a, a literal piece of art that's on film yeah i think i would say the modern day equivalent to that is the mist that was that just came out i mean a lot of the reviews are like uh the effects aren't that great or it's obvious that the creatures just it's all low budget and stuff but it doesn't really matter because the story is is so well told Mm -hmm. different things are going on or they they minimize maybe what you're you're gonna see or whatever and uh i I thought that worked really well and that i think that's a perfect example right there yeah belief is suspended then you're willing to forgive a lot if your belief is not suspended you will nitpick everything to death that's generally what you know the obvious thing that makes or breaks a movie uh for most people is the story has sucked me in i'm like oh i don't care if that's not realistic i was following the story it had me yeah, it's just a matter of images. Like, you could bring it to Werner Herzog, and like one thing that I love about his movies is he manages to create imagery that you have never seen before. And I think that's something that is, you know, along the same lines as special effects. With the mist, sure, a lot of this the stuff looked fake, but you know, the shot of when they're driving and you see, you know, that kind of Jurassic Park moment. For me, even if it did look fake, it, it was an, a nice, interesting visual. And, you know, it, that's what it's about. It's about, uh, you know, movement, sound, and just creating things that you can't experience otherwise. Not just effects, but just imagery that you, you don't commonly see. Well, I think that kind of goes back to the talking about, you know, the older films versus the newer films i think nowadays movies a lot of movies are sold based on just the effects people go because they want to see crazy effects they want to you know have this escapist experience and i think a lot of the older films you know it started with the story and everything serves the story and and i think that's why a lot of them work nowadays even you know rewatching them because it's not about the effects it's about the story it's about the other things that are going on there and escape from new york is completely to bring it back around about the story it's got a great little story that 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 goes on in there yeah and i mean you're right there aren't a ton of effects in there and i think that's one of the reasons maybe why it's so rewatchable nowadays is just because you know, it's most of the time and it's, it's just believable. You're watching the scene and it's just, you know, it, 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 it's supposed to be the future, but you could see yourself there. And I don't know. But the effects that are in there as limited as they are, are very ambitious for a low budget film like that. And they're done very well. Yeah. Well, uh, sorry. I don't know. Should we, should we move on to, uh, Last Man on Earth, or any closing thoughts, I guess, on Escape from New York? 
No, I, to be really honest, I was kind of at a loss of a lot of things to say about Escape from New York. So um, I think we pretty much covered it and tangent, tangent, tangented pretty well on other things. So yeah, delightfully retro is what springs to mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a great. I don't think it's. I, I thought it was fun to sit and watch. Am I gonna watch it again in the next ten years? Mm, probably not. But really? I mean, oh mm. yeah. See, I think it's got the total rewatch value for me. Like it does. I'm just not gonna go out of my way to go find it again. I don't think. Like I've seen it twice now, and I'd much rather watch Big Trouble in Little China for the 400th time. <laughs> before but I it does it. make you want to go out and see the sequel, Escape from L.A. Right? Oh yeah. Yeah, that's true. I haven't. I think I saw the sequel, but I don't remember a thing about it other than that cover, like the the video cover of him on the surfboard. So, yeah, I, I would assumed, definitely go check out. Sorry, I I just assumed that everybody owned this film. I, I have both of them, and I I don't watch them that often. I'm not. I wouldn't say they're my favorite movies, but I just I added them to the collection because it's just something that you just pop in every once in a while. I I I've always assumed that it was something everybody had. Actually. I would say every three or four, every three or four years, <laughs> I'll, I'll sit down and 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 watch one of them, and mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's like a lot of movies that are like, that had, someone mentioned re- repeating dialogue, um, and you know they they move from scene like they're little vignettes almost. Escape from L.A. even more so is vignette to vignette, and you just you watch the movie the same way I'd watch something like uh, The Big Lebowski or whatever. You're watching it as much enjoying the now as anticipating what's coming. And the more times you watch the movie, the enjoyment level, it's not a diminishing return. The enjoyment level goes up because you, you just anticipate things and, and it, it makes you love the movie more. Exactly. I will be returning to it, but I will agree with Andrew that I will be returning to Big Trouble in Little China uh, more often because that's a movie I watch at least once, if not twice a year. Okay, so now we're going to move on to the second movie for this week's or this month's podcast. Um, we're talking about The Last Man on Earth. And of course, the relevance uh, should be obvious to anyone who has heard about Will Smith's new movie, I Am Legend, which actually comes out in theaters this weekend. Um, the, it's based on the same book. I Am Legend, written by Richard Matheson, um, and also uh, The Omega Man was the other movie that was based on this source material. Now, Last Man on Earth was released in 1964 uh, and stars Vincent Price and uh, directed by Sidney Salkow, I believe. And Ubaldo Ragona. It, it was filmed in Rome. And it had two directors. It, it, since it's Vincent Price and an entirely Italian cast, they had the uh, American director that you just mentioned for Vincent Price. Oh, okay. And um, Ubaldo Ragona for all the Italian scenes, all the Italian actors, which is wacky in and of itself. Right. So, um, well, I guess maybe we can start off by mentioning that uh, some of us had a little bit of trouble finding this movie to watch, but apparently it is in the public domain. Yeah, well, f- weird thing, it liter- we, we picked this one over a month ago, and the movie, at the time, I, uh, I didn't know it was coming out, but it, it last week, 
last Tuesday or so so from we're recording this on a Thursday so nine days ago it came out in a remastered version I mean in anticipation of course of the Will Smith movie that's using the same source material but when they made this movie uh, it was like a lot of science fi- iconic science fiction films it was dumped on for either cheesy acting or or people didn't get down with the story or it was too grim and it was just forgotten and the creators uh, and the rights holder it was this American um, uh, B film producer he produced hundreds of low budget films um, including I believe he might have ghost directed uh, the Vincent Price The Fly which would have been the Vincent Price connection here um, they let copyright expire sometime in the uh, in the uh, late 1960s, so it's fully available in the uh, public domain, and I got my copy, scratchy, somewhat cropped version that it was, out of the uh, inter- internet um, video archive. It was like a three gigabyte download. I think it's also on Google Video, so just for anybody who is looking for a way to view the movie. Um, One funny thing... <clears throat> I've owned this movie for a long time, but I never watched it. It was on one of those double MGM Midnight Movie Classics releases. Mm -hmm. But I had always thought that this movie was based in like a... I thought it was a gothic horror, like based in in like, I guess, sort of a medieval setting or something. And the reason, reason for that is because it's in the public domain, you, you've got these uh, discount uh, releases of it, kind of like Night of the Living Dead and Metropolis and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And when I worked at HMV, we had a copy of it there. And the cover had Vincent Price on it with a giant haunted mansion behind him. Because yeah, there was, in, you know, it gets lumped in with all the Edgar Allan Poe movies. Yeah, and, and it totally sold it as that type of film. So I had always thought it was... Uh, that type of film. And I was surprised when I put it on and saw that it was actually made in the sixties and took place in the sixties. And I actually went out and bought the newly released fancy, fancy, super clean, very nice looking edition. And it, it, it was great to watch because it looked like a brand new movie. It was fabulous. I'm going out to get that after this movie. Uh, I, I enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> put it that yeah. way. I, I, you know, actually, the one thing that immediately struck me was someone brought up uh, George Romero uh, in the previous version. When I'm watching that, my jaw was in my lap because I was thinking, my God, how much did George Romero rip off either the novel or this film for yeah. Yeah. Night of the Living Dead? It was uncanny. There were... Um, <clears throat> There were so many visual images. Um, I mean, it doesn't hurt the fact that the so-called vampires in this film move and walk like, like the Romero zombies, yeah, zombies and even the makeup effect. And then, of course, there's always been that Romero-Argento-American-Italian connection, uh, which which this movie has as well. Um, yeah, I, I actually... This movie single-handedly knocked... George Romero down a little bit of a peg for me like it I've never heard this film ever brought up in in Night of the Living Dead I always thought Night of the Living Dead sort of took 
movies like White Zombie from the 30s and just the concept and ran with it in a sort of, you know, New 60s low-budget yeah. industrial film, a little bit of political commentary, a little bit of off-the-cuff. But there's a huge amount of this version of Last Man on Earth um, integrated into Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, I mean, I had the exact same reaction. I was watching this, and I kind of started thinking about the the sort of progression of zombie movies in that genre. And I was thinking, well, you know, usually most people say Night of the Living Dead, that's the birth of the zombie movie. And then, you know, this came out five years before that, and then I started thinking, well, gee, that's that's a little odd. And then uh, looking into it a little more, I believe Romero has actually said that this was a huge influence for him. And, uh, yeah, I'm just so surprised that, you know, this movie is not getting the credit it deserves, I don't think, out there right now. One of the things I always liked, because I had the exact same thing. I mean, they're called vampires in this movie, and, you know, you can repel them with garlic and crosses and stuff, but, no, these were zombies. I mean, they talked about how they got up and rose from the dead, but one of the things I always loved about Night of the Living Dead... Um, Land of the Dead, even to some extent 28 days later, is uh, before the actual outbreak happens. Like, I love the news footage of how it's, as it's just starting, and sort of the hysteria, and um, like the, the announcers on TV, and then they slowly, more and more people are dying, and you read about it in the newspapers, and all that kind of thing, and people start not showing up for work. And there's this ominous feel out on the street, less and less people walking around and stuff. And they always just like little bits of that in those other movies. And I love how in Last Man on Earth, I mean, probably half the movie is devoted to like going back in time to seeing when this disease first started up until, you know, the present. And yeah. I was not prepared for that. And that's always been my favorite parts of those other movies. Yeah, structurally, and, uh, it makes loved it. The Last Man on Earth very weird because it does have a one-third of the film flashback buried right in the center. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't think of weird. too many films that do that. Uh, and I don't know if that was intended or whether it was just how the movie, you know, after it was shot, ended up, how they put it together. But uh, well, I actually, actually took uh, a great bit of pleasure in that unusual structure. Uh, there was a... I think I, I got the new DVD release as well, and there was a short little featurette on there about Richard Matheson, the the original writer of I Am Legend, and he mentions that. He says that he originally wrote it chronologically and then kind of thought, nah, this doesn't quite do it for me. i got to do something to just switch it up a bit. So he decided to start right in the middle of, you know, the, well, not really the action, but, uh, you know, three years after the uh, the plague had hit or whatever and and then do the flashback later and uh he said yeah that was a very effective thing and by that to clarify that he's actually referring to the actual screenplay oh okay so the book doesn't uh i I haven't read the book i think the book does do that because i read i didn't read the book but i read the graphic novel recently which is adapted directly from the book and it does do the same thing i think it may do it in the book as well but in because that interview is on my dvd as well okay and he talks about the fact that he actually wrote the screenplay and had his name changed. Yeah, which to, I, uh, I, I thought that was kind of weird. Swanson. Yeah. Because, yeah, he said he wasn't very happy with some of the changes they made. But um, 
I found that strange because I watched the movie, read the graphic novel, and then I was like, whoa, this isn't really all that different at all. So I'm kind of curious as to what he took exception with there. But hmm. uh, maybe just uh, a quick little side note on, did any, has anyone else read the book at all or no? I have. Um, one thing I, I got from the graphic novel, which I think uses chunks from the book, is, uh, you know, it definitely gives you that sense of, like, his inner struggle, which you can't really get so much from the movie without direct narration or things like that. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's one thing that I really loved about going back and then reading it, because there's just so much, that's really what the movie is, is, you know, the inner struggle of this last man. Um yeah. But on the other hand, the movie, uh, the cool thing about it is it really gives you the sense of the the isolation and, uh, I guess, the, the desolation of this planet that's kind of wiped out, you know. And you can't really get that from reading as well, I don't think. Well, the only problem with that is it's ruined during the very the opening credits. As soon as you see more than one credit listed, you know he's not the last man on Earth. <laughs> Well, <laughs> the uh, I like the way they sort of flipped around. Even the, I don't know if this is in the book or not because I've not read the novel. But he's the vampire, or sorry, the, 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 everyone's vampires in the movie. But in the traditional, or at least the Anne Rice uh, and uh, and Bram Stoker um, uh, source of vampire lore that I'm drawing from, they usually do paint the the vampire as the sort of immortal, lonely isolated by themselves person and in this case the vampires are just like we said zombies but um vincent price's character is almost like the lonely immortal um because he's the he's the last guy and i thought that well that was a pretty clever way to invert um the the usual structure of a vampire story oddly enough i thought that was done even better in the omega man because in that movie, uh, the the well, I, I guess vampires. I don't know what what else you would call them in that movie. They were guys. hippies. <laughs> um, had more of a. Um, it, it seemed like the only problem they had is they couldn't go out during the the day, and you know they were al- albinos. <laughs> Otherwise, they led pretty normal lifestyles. Um, so it, it, there was even more a sense that Charlton Hessen was kind of killing their people. Uh, whereas in the last man on earth, like we said, the, the people are more like zombies that are just kind of muttering things as they approach people. Well, the sense that I've, that I had from reading the book and it's been a few years since I've read it. Um, I sort of always got this feeling that you know, here's this one last surviving man that's locked in his house at night. And I I got this impression from the way that the story was written that there were like thousands, like millions of these vampires and they were all trying to get rid of the last surviving man. And I didn't get that from the film. Even just like the way the house was boarded up, that was my first impression, was this doesn't seem like he's all that afraid of what's going on outside during the night. Cause I mean, the boards are half falling off. There's like right. holes in the windows. And I, I didn't feel that sense of urgency to stay it's, alive. It's much more fortress in, uh, in the Charlton Heston version as okay, which I haven't seen. Um, but Charlton Heston's more like 
Charlton Heston. That's all. He, there's a lot of gun shooting and a lot of, uh, craziness. <laughs> the Vincent Price one is much more brooding um, yeah. with the thing. But the one thing that I, I maybe it's because I've just watched No Country for Old Men twice. But the one thing that I kept playing through my head when I was watching Last Man on Earth was the whole "you can't stop what's coming." Yeah. Um, there's a sense that he's the task that he's going about of trying to clear the city of you know hundreds of thousands of dead people is a futile one. And when you do finally meet up with the rest of the um, surviving members, which, by the way, Romero totally stole for Dawn of the Dead with the biker gang, but that's another thing. Um, when you finally meet up with the other clan, and they're sort of halfway between um, the zombies, the full-on zombies, like uh, the people that are outside of his house, and human, they're almost like they're the next evolutionary mm -hmm. stage, and they just cannot accept him. He's like a different race at that point, and they fear him. It's like a full-blown racist uh, thing, almost like you know, in in No Country for Old Men, Chigurh is just—he's like an alien in that film, and and they just want to get rid of uh, uh, Vincent Price because he doesn't belong in their world anymore. I I thought that was incredibly nihilistic because you're supposed to sympathize with the um, with the last man, but. In a way, the movie almost says that he's obsolete. Yep. Yeah. He's been replaced. Um, another interesting thing, and this kind of maybe ties a little bit back to John Carpenter. Um, I think this movie has, people have said there's, you know, a lot of the sort of the communist undertones here. And I know the thing was always talked about as, as having that as well. And I mean, towards the end of this movie, there is a, a scene that's very similar to the thing which is you know just kind of trying to figure out is somebody you know infected or is somebody not infected and there's that same kind of tension there but uh yeah i i guess there's there's a lot of i mean again going back to george romero and how his films always have some sort of social commentary or whatever i mean there's a lot of that going on here too yeah i get a huge Don Siegel version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Like, I mean, these movies, I don't know how close they were together. Uh, I guess they were almost 10 years apart. Um, so Last Man on Earth would have been 10 years later. But I got a big, big vibe of uh, um, to the Don Siegel version, not the subsequent remakes. But it's interesting because Last Man on Earth, like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, has been remade several times now right we're coming out on official version number three but then there's like offshoot movies like night of the comet in the mid 80s which is very very similar it's it's it's, an, it's a flat-out ripoff of the concept at least um so i i like stories like um this one that can be remade and re-envisioned yeah i guess this the times the story is uh, can just kind of be morphed to fit whatever is happening in the world at the time. Yeah, and I'm actually still. I I mean, I know nine eleven was like seven years ago, six years ago, um, but it's still weird to see in a, a film, you know, the Brooklyn Bridge being destroyed and and like a, a attack on that specific city it's like 
still these movies just go back to New York and destroy, they keep destroying New York uh, or in Cloverfield or whatever. But um, one thing I love about these movies, I think Andrew uh, touched upon is the global, um, the feeling of a global catastrophe. And, uh, but I I will say I didn't really get that from this. Um, I, I don't think that was really the, the goal because it is about the last man. Maybe, you know, when we're in the flashback mode and, and you're getting the, which I love the whole scenes of bringing the bodies to, to be burned and whatnot. Um, yeah, there's no way, by the way, uh, sorry to interrupt that in the Will Smith version, I'm, I'm throwing this bold prediction out on the table that you will not see Will Smith have to put down his wife. And I'm, I'm really, I'm really I curious to see keep those negative elements. Like I heard that, uh, I wonder I, if the dog will die. <laughs> yeah, I don't, like I heard that the first half of the new movie, I Am Legend, is like very close to the book, and then from there it completely goes off on its own tangent. So I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm very curious to see how they change things around and what they stick I guarantee with. Guarantee you, they will not. Even though the Heston one and the uh, Vincent Price one both end. Um, very badly for the last man on earth i have a feeling that the uh, the modern version uh, even in our post 911 dark times I just maybe it's the presence of will smith in there i, I mm-hmm. just i have a feeling this one's going to end on a positive note which is a shame because i think the ending of the um um the vincent price one or the, the last man on earth the way he, well he's speared by them and then he just spits in their face as he goes down it's so angry yeah well yeah and i mean that's kind of something that uh again coming back to old versus new um a lot of the older movies and i don't know if it's because you know some of these were considered b movies and they weren't necessarily supposed to be mainstream entertainment I, i don't know how that works but um they had the boldness to go with like sort of a uh, a downer of an ending and you don't see that so much nowadays so uh maybe then we should uh bring this back around to what we kind of started talking about with escape from new york but um obviously this is a, a black and white film released in the 60s um you know and you've got uh, a very distinct acting style going on with vincent price um and you know there's there's the music in it is is certainly of the time. Um, how do you guys, when you're sitting down to watch a movie like this, does that get in the way of what's there for you, or how do you feel about it? I'll say that I I was surprised at the aspect ratio. I mean, usually films like this, you would expect to see even a a, a full frame in some cases presentation or at least the 16.9, but the, the two, three, five aspect ratio, uh, I wasn't expecting and it was put to good use, I guess. I mean, the, the cinematography in it is, is really well done. And, and I don't think there's too much in here aside from maybe the acting style that separates this film from, something of a lower key that would be released nowadays. Marina mentioned the house and how 
it's a little too casually boarded up. It doesn't feel like he's really fortressed himself in there. That may have been a limitation of the uh, low budget. But then there's that side. But the opposite end of the spectrum is they do have a lot of shots of him. I I don't know if it's in Rome or in... um, you know, I don't know, Udina or some small, smaller northern Italian city that they uh, filmed this in. But there are a lot of great shots of him walking around in a relatively deserted part of town. Or they've got the ang- the camera angle such that for when he's on screen, it looks like every there's no one moving around and it's quite empty. And so through a little bit of creativity or or or, or luck or what have you. I think the movie does have a really nice you feel like this guy is truly alone in there. I so I think that this I didn't even have to even make the attempt to suspend disbelief. I think the movie does a really credible job at doing it on its own. Yeah, and I mean I, I totally agree. I think one of the reasons why this works so well is I mean, regardless of where it's shot, you don't know where it is. It could be anywhere. Could you be your own backyard? And that's something that I really, really liked. I mean, obviously the churches aren't in your backyard, but everything else. And um, it was particularly, uh, it really hit me when he's when he sees the dog and he's running through the city. And I mean, it, it is, it's empty. And you feel that emptiness. Like you say, it's however it is that they managed to get that, it worked really well. One thing I, I can see people maybe having some trouble with is there are some distinct moments that are of the time. And because this movie is a, uh, does have a kind of darker tone, um, at least in comparison to, I guess the Omega man, um, it might be a little jarring to have these things side by side where say one example, the montage of him killing vampires, staking vampires, where it's done in that that specific style of the time where, you know, it'll be a, a, bla- a background plate and a half-dissolved Vincent Price walking into the screen, mm-hmm. looking at a notebook or something like he's checking off the, yeah. the, the kills. And then it'll, you know, dissolve to him doing this kind of half-assed uh, hammer <laughs> down on a yeah. stake. And it's like totally... You know, it might be jarring for audiences now to not hear a sound effect of a stake going in or hearing the vampire make, you know, react to it or anything. You just see Vincent Price walk in front of the camera and just, you know, kind of hammering motion. (laughs) He's not even hitting anything. Here's a trivia. Yeah, it reminds of all those Hammer Peter Cushing movies. Yeah. and Christopher Lee vampire films. Hammer, I believe, actually was originally supposed to make this movie, and they passed on it. And then, you know, uh, uh, American producers picked it up and shot it cheapo in, in Italy. But yeah, it, it, that that one particular scene that you that that calls to mind, where it shows him staking the vampires, uh, feels like a like a vintage Hammer uh, horror studios film. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing for me, like, um, the acting, you know, obviously I I don't think, um, for me and like talking about the book and how there's so much sort of like the inner struggle. Um, and you know, I think today if you had certain actors, they could really pull that off with just their expressions and, you know, 
the, the way they act. And I don't think Vincent Price quite pulled that off. I mean, there's some scenes where he gets, he's supposed to be very emotional and it just, you know, it's, it's kind of laughable almost, but, uh, that didn't really bother me so much. Like I kind of accept that and, you know, I know who Vincent Price is. And I, I think compared to even Charlton Heston and the Omega Man, I felt a lot more for Vincent Price in this one. But Heston's too much of an action hero. Yeah. But the one thing that uh, that did bug me a bit and kind of took me out of the movie and distracted me was the music, I think. Um, like, certain points it, it was fine, but um, for something where it's, you know, especially at the beginning of the movie where it's supposed to be this guy who's who's isolated and on his own and it's supposed to be dark and just kind of, you know, quiet moments, especially during the day when he's completely by himself. And you have this loud, crashing music constantly beating over you. Um, and it was almost like stock score. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, that... It doesn't happen. I mean, there are some moments where they really do get some sort of suspense and there's quiet moments in there to kind of give you that psychological feel of what he's going through. But, uh, yeah, there were points where the music kind of bugged me, I guess. What did you think of the, uh, uh, this is the one thing time-wise that struck out at me, was the way Vincent Price treats his wife and the way Vincent Price's character (laughs) treats the woman that he finds. I mean, this is... There ain't no feminism up on screen here. Yeah, I mean, no. the woman is very much in her gender role, and the man, can I get your paper? You know, you relax. I mean, she's dying of plague. And like, get him his paper. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of laughed at that too. But uh, yeah, yeah, again, of the time, I suppose. Um, but and on uh, that note, sorry to interrupt, the child acting has come a long way. The child actor <laughs> in this movie is atrocious. <laughs> atrocious. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For me, the, ad, the, the bad acting or whatever is that took me out of the movie are the vampires or the zombies. They were not, I mean, I, I know it's, it's, you know, the 60s, but it, to me, they weren't anywhere near as frightening or as menacing as they are in even like night of the living dead like that voice is so cheesy and it just made me laugh we're coming to get you morgan <laughs> morgan we're going to kill you they were quieter um, and just you know did their thing uh, I think it just would have worked a lot better. I hated the actual zombie guys. I just yeah, Romero again. I, I never even caught that, but the way you just said that, um, the way they say we're coming to get you, Morgan, Romero, the opening line of dialogue in Night of the Living Dead, we're coming to get you, Barbara, and in that mock version, it's like that actor is doing, mm-hmm. which of course is an English dub, right? Because the actors in the original filming were speaking in Italian, and then they dubbed over. Like this is how all Italian films were more or less made. Um, they would even even if they would never use the ambient dialogue, they would always dub them over after. So they dubbed that particular guy, his best buddy, who ends up being like the lead vampire. They uh, they dub over him in English, right? So it's it's a dub. Oh, it's horrible. <laughs> 
I mean, yeah, I think there's certain moments when you're watching this and, uh, you know, you kind of get the feel this could be something that maybe was on Mystery Science Theater at some point or could potentially be there. But at the same time, there's a lot of moments that really... um, I don't know. Like it was definitely better than I thought it would be, and I wasn't expecting it to suck or anything. But um, there's, I think there's something to this movie that you know maybe again I think it just isn't quite getting the credit it deserves. Oh, I am totally. so on board with you there. I, I yeah. consider this to be a true like for me. This is the first time I was coming into this movie. I consider it of why hadn't I seen this movie fifteen years ago. This movie should be trumped right alongside Night of the Living Dead. This movie should be trumped right alongside The Day the Earth Stood Still. This movie should be trumped... You know, I mean, Plan 9 from Outer Space gets more credit than uh, than this movie. And this movie wrote... I mean, I I know a lot of other um, screenwriters and, and, and directors have cribbed from Richard Matheson, but this movie was the first real kick at the can here, and it does a very good job at it, considering its limitations. Well, it looks like... uh, I like this movie even better than The Omega Man. Yeah, yeah, me too. You know what? Omega Man, again, plays like an Evil Dead 2 version. I honestly... Omega Man 1 takes it so far over the top. Um, I really like The Omega Man. Talking to the bust of Caesar, uh, (laughs) playing chess with him, and, you know, isn't afraid to break out his, like, you know, automatic weapon and just start gunning people down. Yeah. I liked in Omega Man how he would be sitting there playing chess and then a a flaming ball would fly through his window and he'd just go out and shoot a couple rounds off and then get back to his game. (laughs) On top of that, he's wearing the ultra frilly, like, it's like a blouse or something that he's wearing. It's the least manly piece of wardrobe. Except at the the end. At the end, when he goes to to get that kid, and he puts on that like it looks like a NASA outfit with like a pilot's hat, <laughs> it rules. Oh God! Yeah. But again, for the time, Omega Man was a fairly large budget production. It wasn't like a. In this case, um, this was a low budget, definitely a B film, but one of those great, you know, films that somehow managed to. Rise way above, just like Night of, or not Night of, Night of Living Dead, of course, but also the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers was a one-off B film that ended up being far better than it ever had any right to be, and 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 that's where I put Last Man on Earth. I, I'm a big fan of it. And one piece of trivia, thanks to uh, our good friend Reed Farrington, uh, <laughs> Richard Matheson actually wrote. Uh, an episode of Star Trek, the original series, which happens to be one of my favorite episodes. And it's the one where Kirk uh, has the evil Kirk twin after going through the damaged transporter. And he he goes through and then a second evil Kirk goes through right after him, like a bizarro Kirk. I don't remember that one. Thanks to Reed Farrington for that. (laughs) Well, I think Matheson also wrote for a bunch of Twilight Zone episodes, didn't he? Yeah. Yep. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I guess uh, any final thoughts on Last Man on Earth? Well, I would like to just, just because we did two um, uh, post-apocalyptic films, um, I, maybe this is just a little off the cuff, but, uh, you know, where does this stand for everyone here? Uh, where do both Escape from New York, which is, you know, the, the prison concept, uh, and Last Man on Earth, where does that stand as 
you know, in your personal canon of post-apocalyptic films. I mean, I think all of us are on the same page that we like this type of movie. Uh, yeah, well, I, I'm a big fan of post-apocalyptic movies for sure. Um, and, you know, even with zombie movies kind of being so done as of late, like there's so many zombie movies coming out and zombie TV shows in the works and just everything zombie. But, um, you know, I still, I still, there's something about that concept of like the worldwide plague or whatever it is that kind of intrigues me. And, um, you know, I think for that reason, Last Man on Earth is really, I mean, this is going to be a movie that anybody I talk to now about zombie movies, I'm going to bring this up. And if they haven't seen it, I'm going to be like, check this out because <clears throat> this is kind of really where it started, you know? And It's a prototype. It is. Um, for me, I enjoy po- the post-apocalyptic <laughs> genre as well. And... I, this was my first time watching Last Man on Earth, so I, I it's wasn't really a part of my uh, regular viewing previous to this. Although I now see it as the uh, laying a bit of the groundwork for some of the films that I enjoy now, but it still uh, for me um, doesn't trump. There's there's some films that are out there that I think. Um, I, I enjoy a little more and are a little more powerful to me in, in that specific genre that maybe because maybe it's unfair, like one that automatically comes to mind, which is happens to be a, even a little more connection to star Trek is the Nicholas Meyer directed uh, TV movie that the day after, which for me is the ultimate uh, post-apocalyptic film because that out of any horror movie, that my parents let me watch as a child, none of them really stuck with me or, or scarred me as much as the day after. And who'd have thought that a film starring Steve Gutenberg would leave an, a long lasting impression with me, but, um, well, that's a real circuit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> robots taking over the earth. <laughs> um, that's a movie that's based in, in reality. So I guess it's kind of a, a unfair thing, but, uh, before I, I pass the baton on, I just wanted to quickly mention before I forget, I, one thing that, uh, came to mind as I was watching this is I'm actually reading a book right now. I can't remember the name of the author. It's like Serio something. Um, but it's called blindness and it's about, Oh Yeah. Yeah, it's about a, a yeah, sorry. blind epidemic that hits and people suddenly start going blind and it, the main character is a doctor and they get kind of quarantined and he's trying to uh, uh, figure out what's going on and his, his wife actually is immune to it and she hasn't told anyone because if she does tell them, uh, there will be madness and, and she's keeping it secret so... Uh, I'm in the middle of the book right now, but it, it reminded me of that quite a bit. Mm-hmm. That's a great novel, by the way. Which Good apparently choice. is going to be made into a film. It's already being filmed. Is it? Yeah. Uh, by um, the guy that directed um, 
The Constant Gardener, which wasn't all that great, but hmm. City of God, you mean? Yes, thank you. <laughs> That's the better one. Fernando mm-hmm. Millier, I, I can't yeah. remember. Well, that'll be good then. Yeah, that sounds cool. Yeah. Uh, for me, this movie, I, I echo what you guys already said. Is that I don't really think it's really fantastic. I liked it quite a bit, but more than that, I'll just. I'll know now where the dawn of zombie movies came from. I had no idea that this was, you know, as Kurt mentioned in the beginning, that this is so obviously what Romero used as the foundation for all his films. I mean, it's just obvious. If he, ha- I think, Sean, you said he at one point he admitted that, yeah, this is a huge, um, you know, source of inspiration for me. If he never, if he denied that, I'd call him a liar because it's just so obvious. And, um, so, yeah, I... That's I'll definitely pass this on to people saying you got to check this out because if you like zombie movies, here's where it started. And I I love the I want I forgot to mention that in sort of in the beginning when you're talking about his isolationism, he's been isolated and alone for like three years. Mm-hmm. And I love the way they tell you that. In one that he's got the little calendar on the wall that makes it obvious, but two he's got like a map of all of New York City. And like half of the city is darkened out where he's been, and and it's just like, you know, block for block, street for street, house for house, he's gone through and cleaned up the area, and it's just like, holy shit, that must have taken See, so long to go. Through that's a lot of montages, <laughs> and I, I love that. What, what I what I was wondering though when I saw that was how does he know that new people didn't move back into the area that he had just cleaned out (laughs) and like making the the wooden stakes every single day he has like a lathe in his there's the star trek moment right there i'm looking at that he did make a rudimentary lathe (laughs) actually that's one thing i really liked that apparently goes into even more detail in the novel is the explanation of how the stakes work against the vampires where they're wide like that so that they separate so that they can't heal ba- heal over, right? Mm-hmm. Which yeah. is something I'd never really. Heard. Yeah, it was cool because he tried to scientifically explain all the vampire mythology. Mm-hmm. It was pretty cool. And some From, oh, sorry. the the whole mirror thing is some. What did he, what was the term he said? Like a temporary blindness or a yeah um, due to insanity or something. I don't know. There was a, a scientific explanation for every piece of the vampire the crosses were like a psychological thing Mm because like if somebody was jewish it didn't affect them or something like that i don't know Hmm. um for me my i I don't specifically search out post-apocalyptic movies though i do enjoy them when i see them um and my back viewing catalog isn't quite as extensive as all of yours but um for me this is certainly uh fairly high on my list of the few that I have seen and enjoyed um, for a whole bunch of reasons, probably most of them already mentioned, but I, I really enjoyed it. I was quite surprised. I, same thing. I wasn't really thinking that it was going to be a bad movie, but I wasn't quite expecting it to be this good. So pleasant surprise. Highly recommended. Well, for me, this has jumped so far into my instant classic for on one viewing. I'm ready to, throw this up there right near the top of uh, of my favorite movies just because as it was said before it felt like such a prototype to not just Night of the Living Dead there's elements 
I'm not a big fan of land, but in the original three uh, dead films, uh, Night, Dawn, and Day, all three of them have huge elements uh, taken from this. Um, lastly, it tied in with all the body snatcher films too, which I which are, are great. Um, they're like not so much post-apocalyptic; they're, they're like like what Andrew said, what he likes, middle of the apocalypse movies, where you actually see things start to crumble. All right, and for whatever reason, the isolation aspect of it reminded me, I don't know why, but of A Boy and His Dog, the Don Johnson um, one. I actually wanted the dog to be in the movie a little bit more, and I see that the Will Smith one has incorporated the dog right into the movie uh, to where you just have this iconic image of you know man and one friend in there. So it, it reminded me... Uh, very much of that and huge props on bringing up the day after i still love that movie to this day um but uh, there's just i'm willing to forgive this movie for almost anything for all the ideas that it seemed to bring to the table visually because i mean the literature has been around for for uh, years these types of stories are you know right back to the bible right but to bring that to the screen so well visually and they got some of these great loneliness shots and then when the people come in the whole vincent price spitting in their faces as they 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 confirm his obsolescence i i, I thought that was just a kick-ass ending i i love the ending so, um, yeah it's it's way up in my books okay so um i guess uh that's kind of wrapping things up here for uh this particular episode of the movie club podcast now um, I guess we should mention that the next show uh, will be uh, – now, this was voted on by the listeners, I believe, on our website, which we have the domain name now, right, Marina? Yeah. So yes, movieclubpodcast.com. I believe so. Uh, so you head there, and um, you can vote on the next show. But uh, the, the winners for, the, for episode four, which will come in January, uh, were uh, Lady in the Water – and <laughs> funny games. So Lady in the Water, I think, is going to be an interesting one um, for sure. But um, I'm, I'm interested to see funny games because I haven't seen it yet. So, And I guess Lady in the Water, just for a lot of us, it'll be our first viewing. Funny games is going to be somewhere in the vein of something like uh, I Am Legend in the sense that by the time we have recorded that episode... Um, a month later, there will be a remake of Funny Games uh, in the theater as well. Right. So, um, yeah, if you want to get in touch with us, please feel free to uh, visit the website and leave comments on uh, this particular episode or any others. And uh, I guess, is that about it? That's about it. So... Okay, so thanks for listening, and we'll see you guys next month on the Movie Club Podcast.